Good evening. Good evening, Good evening. This is Kwame and welcome to another installment of the Gist for Freedom Estate. This show is produced by acclaimed historian, educator, and author Leslie Gist, and serves as our weekly live online discussion to celebrate the African American experience by honoring all the people, past and present, black and white, who, with faith and focus, are preserving our rich history through literature, the arts, the skilled trades, and the humanities. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we'd love you to be a part of tonight's discussion by calling in with your comments or questions to 347-324-5552. Hello, you're listening to Leslie Gibbs. This is the Gist of Freedom. Uh, we have a great show. We have a great show tonight. Um, Dr. Chavez, are you on the phone? I am. Okay, great. Uh, we're waiting for um, Dr. Cord to call in. And you do have Michael Cord on the line as well? Oh, okay. I didn't recognize your number. I was panicking. So I apologize. Okay, no need to panic. We're all here and happy. Okay, let me get out the way. Thank you, fellas. Thank you. This is, as you just heard, those who have tuned in, the Gist of Freedom, normally hosted by Leslie Gist. It's a blog talk, blog talk radio show, and it provides the best in Afrocentric information. And tonight we're at the pinnacle of Afrocentric information, specifically the topic of Pan-Africanism. And i got to tell you, and this is no exaggeration, those who are listening, when you talk about Pan-Africanism, you're talking about Dr. Kwame Zulu Shabazz. I mean, he is the go-to man when it comes to the topic of Pan-Africanism. In the next 56, 57 minutes, we're going to pull everything out of his head regarding Pan-Africanism. So by the end of the show, (laughs) as much about this topic as he does. Let me just introduce the listening audience to Dr. Kwame Zulu Shabazz, uh, he's a modest man, so he's not going to tell you the stuff about himself that I'm about to tell you. But um, not only is he a scholar and an intellectual, he calls himself, and I think this is a great title, a ghetto intellectual. We'll find out exactly what that means. And the thing I really appreciate about Dr. Kwame Zulu Shabazz is that he's not what I call one of these ivory tower, ivy league intellectuals that knows nothing about the streets. He's from the streets. You can't get any more street than Compton, and we're talking about the story of Compton all the way to Harvard. I mean, he worked his way through Compton College, a U.S. Marine, professor of African and African-American studies at Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina. Uh, He considers himself a Malcolm X disciple. I mean, there's just so much about this man. Without further ado, let me let him speak up here on the mic. Dr. Shabazz, how are you tonight, sir? I'm doing great, my brother. Now, what could I? What should I call you? How should I? How should I identify? You? Michael. Michael's fine. In fact, my name is Michael Cord. I'm an attorney in Philadelphia. I tell people my name is Michael X. I don't want to give any credit to the slaveholders known by the name of Cord. So, Michael. Michael X is fine. Either one is fine with me. Okay, brother Michael. I'm, I'm familiar with your work. Actually, you're, you're doing work. Uh, let's see. The, the, you have an institution of something about the ancestors. Is that right? That's exactly it. And I got to tell you, you know, normally when I have a guest on like you, I do extensive research. And I got to tell you, sir, you're the first one to tell me that you know something about me. So you get points already. I'm I'm with a group called ATAC, A-T-A-C, Avenging the Ancestors Coalition. And uh, we actually fought here in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, to pressure the federal government to tell the story of our enslaved African ancestors. It's a very long story, but I'll give you a listening audience 30-second overview because I want to hear from you and they want to hear from you. Back in 2002, the Liberty Bell Center here in Philadelphia was moved from 5th and Market to 6th and Market. We found out then that America's first White House was at 6th and Market, known as the President's House, and George Washington resided there. That's the big news. Then we did research and found out that he enslaved black men, women, and children at America's first White House right here in Philadelphia. So we forced the federal government. We said, hey, if you all want to tell the story of George Washington, if you want to say that he was a great patriot, go ahead and do that. If you want to say he was a great general, go ahead and do that. If you want to say he was a great president, go ahead and do that. But this is the question we pose. Can you be a great
great human being when you hold 316 other human beings in brutal bondage in slavery? Ask mm. that question, and we asked that question. We got the answer, and now here in Philadelphia we have the first, I repeat, the first slavery memorial on federal property in the history of the United States of America. Now, maybe later in the show we'll talk more about that, but Dr. Shabazz, I want to talk to you about Pan-Africanism. I gave your credentials early on because I want people to know that you're not just giving your opinion. This is research based on extensive work that you've done. And that's why I wanted to point out your work at um, Winston-Salem State University, North Carolina, at Harvard. In fact, I understand that you studied cult cultural anthropology at Harvard. So we want to talk a little bit about your background, not so you can brag, because you certainly could brag talking about your background, but I want people to know a little bit about your background so that when you get into the topic of Pan-Africanism and we talk about ancient Egypt or Kemet, when we talk about slavery, when we talk about the Berlin Conference, when we talk about the American Colonization Society, that folks know that you know what you're talking about. So beyond what I said, as far as you attending Compton College, uh, Harvard, teaching at Winston-Salem. Tell us a little bit more about yourself, sir. Okay, that was a, a very generous introduction. Now, I don't consider myself an expert on Pan-Africanism, and, and, mm -hmm. and my bio perhaps will, will explain why. I, okay. I grew up in Inglewood, California, and, mm -hmm. uh, and I've lived in, in every hood in, in Los Angeles, uh, Compton, Watts, uh, South Central, but my formative years were in Inglewood, California. And and growing up in the hood, we don't learn much about Africa. Okay. And, the little bit, and the little bit we learn is negative, right? And so um, I can recall as a kid being teased and called Kunta Kinte, and I thought that was a huge insult. Mm -hmm, and then, mm -hmm. you know, unbeknownst to me that, you know, by the grace of the ancestors and, and I've had great mentors along the way, I, I wound up going to the home of Kunta Kinte in, in Gambia as an adult. Okay. So, uh, you know, just a full 360 in terms of, or, or 180 in terms of my understanding and knowledge of myself. But that was a very gradual and kind of a late process. Um, let's see. So I guess I would start with, uh, uh, I actually got fired from my job in Inglewood, California. I was a grocery clerk. Okay. Tell us about that. Well, well, let's see, not much to tell. Um, let's see, this was during the Reagan uh, era, and he was uh, basically challenging the power of the unions. And so how that got passed down to us as, as uh, laborers, uh, union workers, is that many mm -hmm. of us, would, they tried to force us into part-time work. And I was one of the few, I was one of those who resisted part-time work, and so they would, they would write me up for for. Basically nothing. If I was short, if I was short, say five cents, that would be a record. Okay. And so basically, they got a, they got enough paperwork to fire me, and um, subsequently, I I got the brilliant idea, uh, brilliant in quotes, to join the Marine Corps. And so I joined the Marine Corps in 1990, and ironically, it was in the Marine Corps that I first became exposed to sort of Afrocentric Pan African ideas. Prior You've got to be time, kidding. I, don't, I kid you not. You've got to be kidding. In the Marines? Have, in the Marines. I could not have named, I probably couldn't have named <laughs> two African countries. So so that's from, say, so from 1992, I guess, is when I start this, this sort of transformation mm -hmm. uh, until the present. So relatively brief time that I've been involved in what you would call uh, uh, Afrocentric thought or Pan-African thought or Black nationalist thought. So mm -hmm. that was from, and, and I should know too. You know, one of my many, well, not many, but one of my first, my first mentor was in the Marine Corps. A brother who was in the Navy. We're both stationed in Hawaii, and his name was Bilal Hashim. So I wanted to acknowledge that brother as being the, the first brother to put me on the path. And uh, brother Bilal gave me two books. Uh, in in I, I forget which order, but he gave me uh, one book to read was the Change in Images of Psychological Slavery by Brother Naim, Brother Doctor Naim Akbar, mm -hmm. and then the other book was the Browder file file by Tony yeah, Browder. Yeah, yeah. And let, and let me ask you this: um, <laughs> Go ahead before you go in. How, how, why were or how were 
you're receptive at this point. I mean, you pointed out that this whole thing about this African stuff growing up as a kid and around Compton, that really wasn't your cup of tea. What was it in the Marines that made you even receptive to listening, to to pursuing it? Well, that's a good question. I, I think part of it was maybe just the personality of Brother Bilal. He's a very humble brother. Okay. Um, he doesn't force things upon you. You know, we would just have conversations, just really yes. sort of very uh, um, unconfrontational uh, okay. Okay. Conversation, conversation about African-American history and culture. And I just hadn't thought about these things. So just really sort of, for some reason, I was receptive to it. And I think part of it probably had to do with the way he approached it. Okay, he wasn't okay. Dog, he wasn't dogmatic. Um, he didn't force anything upon me. And I think that helped a lot. And so then subsequently, uh, I was I was uh, sent to Japan. And then there, uh, Bilal encouraged me to form, uh, to start a study group. And so I founded in Japan the African American Historical Society Study Group. And that's pretty okay. much where, that's where it all starts. I was discharged in 1994. I picked up another mentor in Los Angeles, Brother Lou Smith. And then I, I go to Compton College, I transfer to UCLA, and then at UCLA, uh, my first year there, I go to Ghana for a year as a study abroad uh, student. And that's pretty much how I got my start. So to reiterate, okay. I don't consider myself, a, I'm not an expert on Pan-Africanism. What I hope to do is, you know, we'll have a conversation. I'll, I'll give you some of my ideas, uh, some of the things I've learned over the over the short years about Pan-Africanism perhaps some of my experiences in Ghana. Let me start with the story. We'd love you to talk about that, and I have to say at the outset I did indicate that you're a humble and modest man, and you certainly are. I mean, you've said a number of times you're not a, an expert in Pan-Africanism, but I've read your blogs, I've seen some of your stuff on YouTube, and, you know, if you're not an expert, I don't know who is, but I appreciate what you said. Um, most experts will say, hey, I'm just a student of this topic. I'm learning just like you, so exactly. I appreciate you saying that. I guess when exactly. we talk about Pan-Africanism, let's start at the very beginning. How would you describe or define Pan-Africanism? What is it? Oh, that's that's a good let – me, let me start that with a story. Um, so I, as I said, I grew up in Inglewood, California. My mother is still in the hood, still in Inglewood. And about uh, maybe six years back, um, I went – I was at Boston at the time. I went back to L.A. to visit my mother. And when I'm in Inglewood, I go to – there's a Nigerian restaurant or was, I think it's closed down recently, but the restaurant was called Saris, S-A-A-R-I-S. That's in downtown Inglewood. You know, and I go okay. there and get some, I go there and get a Nigerian, a Nigerian dish, uh, um, sort of, you know, as a way of, as a way of uh, celebrating my Africanness, as it were. Now, this time, okay. the particular time that I went into the restaurant, I heard the sister talking, and I wasn't sure, but I, it was, you know, I was I was pretty certain that she wasn't talking Igbo, and it didn't sound like Yoruba. It sounded to me mm -hmm. like Swahili. Okay. I said, this woman, it sounds like she's speaking Swahili. And so I greet her. I said, Habaragani. And she looks at me for a moment, kind of shocked. And then she's in surprise, and she starts going off in, in Kiswahili. And I say, and I tell her, I can't go that deep. But okay. I learned a few words. I learned a few words of uh, Swahili from... from uh, from our celebration of Kwanzaa, African Americans celebrate Kwanzaa as a way yeah. of acknowledging our African roots. And so I've learned some Swahili words. And so she was just overjoyed that I knew a few African, a few key Swahili words, and we started to have this long conversation. Um, now, the thing about it is, is that this woman is, is uh, she's Kikuyu, and she's a, she was hired as a cook in a Nigerian restaurant, and I'm African American. And so we've mm -hmm. all converged on this. We've all converged on this spot, and she's asking me all of these questions. Now we're going back and forth, and she's sort of having a difficult time processing that I'm an African American because I know a lot about Africa. I've traveled back and forth to Ghana, so she becomes very comfortable, and she starts asking me questions. Why are African Americans? Why don't they try harder? Yes, African yes, Americans have yes. so many. They have so many opportunities. Why don't they take advantage of the opportunities? Why are there so many African Americans in jail? Why don't mm. African Americans care about their culture? Right? Mm. You, you've probably heard some of these before, right? Great questions. Yeah. So, yes. so, so my, my point is, 
this is an example of Pan-Africanism. Pan-Africanism doesn't have to be an organized, institutionalized movement. It can simply be, it can simply be two people coming together um, from disparate places. You know, I'm from, you know, from the hood in Los Angeles, and she's from Tanzania working in a Nigerian restaurant in Inglewood. We're coming together and having a conversation. That, to me, is a sort of Pan-Africanism. The idea that something connects people in the diaspora, the African diaspora, and the people on the continent, something links us. And that linkage should be a, a foundation for, um, for progress, for our mutual progress. And moreover, uh, some would say that it, it should also mean that we should somehow find a way of uniting all of us to galvanize yeah. our efforts. So that's a very basic uh, definition of pan-Africanism. Now, having and I said think that, that's a great starting point. But but let me play the devil's hmm. advocate and say, okay, okay, that all sounds great. But when you look at Africa as the continent with many countries, you have Christian countries, you have Muslim countries in Africa, you have uh, indigenous folks in Africa with their indigenous faith and their indigenous practice. You have capitalist leaders, you got socialist leaders, right. you got what Europeans call tribalism, or we call ethnic tensions. You got all these disparate groups inside Africa, inside this continent. How do you bring them together? That's a good point. Now, now let me say, let me start by saying, let me note first that that. The idea of Pan-Africanism, the origins of Pan-Africanism, according to most of us, and I I tend to think of this too, uh, Pan-Africanism starts with people in the diaspora. It doesn't start with people on the continent, basically for the reasons that you've outlined. Africa is an extremely complicated place. It's probably the most diverse place on the planet culturally, uh, linguistically, um, in terms of ethnicity in terms of religious practices. It's a very diverse place. Um, And so uh, uh, people on the continent of Africa did not see themselves as a a united thing. That idea of unity, ironically enough, um, was introduced by Europeans. Europeans who traveled to Africa said, you know, we're going to call this entire continent Africa, 12 million square miles, uh, we're going to call the entire continent Africa, and the people of this continent are Africans, and they're inferior. Subsequently, uh, the people thus named use that very same concept against the Europeans who named them. They said that we're going to use this idea of a united thing to galvanize us and to and and to forge, you know, uh, weapons of resistance against European domination. You get me. So, in the very okay. concept that Europe, in the very concept that Europeans used uh, to denigrate and subordinate Africans, African people themselves took that very same concept and used it as a weapon of resistance. But I want to emphasize too: the other point I made is that the idea of the idea, the the, the sort of uh, the idea that black people would take up this notion of a united group first originates in in the diaspora amongst people who don't have a memory of specific places in Africa. They have a memory of coming from Africa, but not necessarily not necessarily specific places. And so that makes it easier for them to sort of abstract Africa and see it as a as a as a sort of uh, united thing. Now, it's also true that people on the continent, there are prominent Pan-Africanists on the continent too, who have also Who've also embraced this idea of Pan-Africanism and 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 and, and saw it as a useful tool for for uh, uh, for bringing about progress on the African continent. And we can talk about you know some of those people. Uh, In fact, that, that's along. exactly what I want to do. First of all, I want to thank you for laying that foundation before we jump into some specifics. Um, your definition of Pan-Africanism, I think it's a great starting point for those who really don't understand what it is or where it came from. But in terms of what it is or where it came from, let's talk a little bit about 
Edward Blyden and Henry Sylvester Williams, who these people are, whether they legitimately can be called the father or fathers of Pan-Africanism, and, and how they defined it, how they described it. So let's talk about them first. Then we can get in some other folks, um, like most folks would include, obviously, Du Bois and Garvey and even people like Paul Ropes and entertainers like Bob Marley and uh, Fela, um, politicians or statesmen like statesmen like. Kwame and Kuma, but let's start off with Blyden and Sylvester Williams in terms of how they described or defined Pan-Africanism. Okay, well, let's see. Um, H. Sylvester Williams was a was a barrister, what we would call a lawyer in the U.S. Okay. Um, he was a barrister from Trinidad. And uh, let's see, H. Sylvester Williams was born at a time in Trinidad when when there were people there who who had a direct memory of specific places in Africa. So okay. during his lifetime, during his lifetime, there were people in Trinidad actually petitioning the government to return to Africa. Right. So the very uh, uh, so so what you might call nascent Pan Africanism, the sort of mm-hmm. um, um, was sort of um, uh, what you call it bubbling up in in Trinidad, and he was a part of that environment, and so he winds up. Uh, H. Sylvester Williams winds up uh, sort of institutionalizing Pan-Africanism. In the 1900s, he organized, in, in, in 1900, he organizes the first Pan-African, uh, what do we call it then, a Pan-African Congress. Okay. Um, and, no, I think the, let's see, I think the later efforts were Congresses. Uh, I forget what what his particular institution was called, but he organized the first sort of, he institutionalized the first sort of meeting of Pan-Africanist folks in the diaspora who are talking about their 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 agenda basically is is solidarity with with the anti colonial movement in Africa. So they're anti imperialist, they're anti colonialist. And so that's H. Sylvester Williams. Um now Edward Wilmot Blyden is sort of he he's typically thought of as the father of Pan Africanism. He okay. is of uh he is of, of Igbo descent. His parents are are Igbo. He's born in the Virgin Islands, and um, let's see. And let's see. Uh, basically, Leiden's position is that is that um, African Americans can't make a go of it in in the United States because mm-hmm. it's too, the, the racism is just too thick. It's just too oppressive. The best thing that we can do as a black people is repatriate back to Africa. And that's pretty much what Blyden's concept was, was the idea that African people have to repatriate, have to return to Africa. And his, his place of return, his choice of return was Liberia, and he also spent a significant amount of time in Sierra Leone. And so that was okay. so Blyden, Blyden was specifically about, he addressed repatriation. And, and um, H. Sylvester Williams sort of institutionalizes or galvanizes African diasporan uh, efforts to speak to the issues in the, on the continent as it relates to uh, colonialism and imperialism. Okay. Now, um, let me add a few more. Let me mention a please, few more. Please, go ahead, please. And, yeah. I, I wanted to mention, now, there are many different ideas about what Pan-Africanism is. I just wanted to mention a few more that come off the top of my head that, I, that, are, that are really essential to my, my research. Uh, in fact, and before you do that, Dr. Shabazz, we certainly want you to. By the way, those who just tuned in, we have on the line Dr. Kwame Zulu Shabazz. Here's a gentleman who's gone from Compton to Harvard, uh, studied cultural anthropology, went on to teach and does teach, professor of African and African-American studies at Winston-Salem State University in North Carolina. We're talking tonight about Pan-Africanism, but we're going to go beyond that. We're going to talk about slavery. We're going to talk about the Berlin Conference. We're going to talk about reparations. We're going to talk about colonization. Talk about all those good things tonight on the Gist of Freedom blog talk radio show, normally hosted by Leslie Gist, who does a great job giving powerful cultural information to the African-American and other communities in and around wherever you happen to be throughout the not only the United States but throughout the planet. What we're going to do for those who have called in, I understand we have several callers lined up. We're going to get to you in just a few minutes. We want to hear the final words from Dr. Kwame, Zulu, Shabazz, the point he was making, then we'll get to the caller. So please be patient. We'll get to you all in about a minute or two. Dr. Shabazz, please continue. 
Okay, great. Yeah, I, w- I would love to hear from the callers. I, you know, I don't want to go into a, di- a monologue. So let me just mention a few a few things that I've encountered in my research. Uh, one is is a, a name that many of you will recognize, Kwame Nkrumah. Uh, Kwame yeah. Nkrumah was the first president of Ghana, and uh, Ghana gained its independence in 1957. Now, what's important about Nkrumah is that he was educated at Lincoln University, an HBCU yeah. in Philadelphia. Okay. Right. And eventually he goes to London, and then he goes back to Ghana to what was in the Gold Coast, and joins the struggle to liberate the Gold Coast. And 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 uh, Nkrumah is important for lots of reasons. Uh, I'll just mention a few of those. One is that he actively encouraged African Americans to return to Africa to uh, help build up Africa. And many African Americans answered his call. I have a list, maybe I'll read at the end, I have a list of maybe 40 African-Americans who were in Ghana making concrete uh, contributions to Ghanaian infrastructure. Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, Let's see. And besides that, Kwame Nkrumah was just uh, uh, an important statesman. He was was seen as sort of the leading advocate of pan-Africanism on the African continent. And he, he pushed Africans, exhorted them to unite all of Africa must all of us, the entire continent, must unite under what he called scientific socialism. Um, and also, uh, Kwame Nkrumah invited he he was he invited W. E. B. Du Bois to come and and work in Ghana and embark upon the Encyclopedia Africana project. Uh, so this really a hugely important uh, 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 figure in the Pan Africanist movement. Now, there's also I wanted to mention quickly Malcolm X. Malcolm X says that, uh, now, Malcolm X in his later years, in fact, Malcolm X died organizing the Organization of Afro-American Unity, which was inspired by the Organization of African Unity. And Malcolm X says that that if we can't return, if we can't repatriate physically, as Edward Edward Wilmot Blyden advocated, we must at least return to Africa mentally. We must reclaim our African thoughts, our African thinking, our African uh, way of our African, an African-centric perspective. That was Malcolm X. In brief, there was much more I could say about him, but that's I wanted to contrast him with Blyden. Malcolm says that we must return at least mentally. Um, and then I just wanted to quickly mention uh, there's a Nigerian scholar whom I've, I've encountered in in Ghana whilst doing my research, and his name is Chimwizu. Chimwizu says that Kwame Nkrumah was crazy. He didn't say he was crazy, but he says Kwame Nkrumah was confused. We can't unite the entire African continent because the Arabs have taken over North Africa. If we unite all of Africa, you give the Arabs who are controlling North Africa, you give them a gateway into sub-Saharan Africa, and we'll be dominated by those Arabs too. So Chimwizu says that we have to only we should only focus on uniting quote unquote Black Africa. He's basically he concedes uh, North Africa to quote unquote Arab Africans. So I just wanted to toss out those to give you some sense of the the differences of opinion about what Pan Africanism should encompass. And I'm glad you laid that out, Dr. Shabazz. Uh, one of the questions I want to get to later on in the show, assuming we have time, because we're going to start taking some callers, is um, you know what is Pan Africanism? for indigenous Africans relative to African Americans. Is it the same thing? Does it mean the same thing? Will indigenous Africans embrace African Americans if they try to come home, if we try to go from, say, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania to Ghana? Would we be considered as Africans and embracing this Pan-African movement? Um, So we're going to talk about that. We want to get to colonization. We want to get to slavery. We want to get to a whole bunch of stuff. But shortly we're going to get to phone calls from people. Before we do that, Dr. Shabazz, if folks are interested in getting a hold of you, how can they contact you, whether it's by phone, email, Facebook, Twitter? What's the best way for folks to get a hold of you? Okay, let me give you my my email. My email is uh, Kwame Shabazz, K-W-A-M-E-S-H-A-B-A-V-Z at gmail.com. Once again, that's Kwame Kwame Shabazz, K-W-A-M-E-S-H-B-A-V-Z. 
zz at gmail.com. Um, I'm okay, also and we're going to repeat that toward the end of the show. Okay. We obviously have you on until 9 p.m., so we do have about 30 minutes left. But right now we have a caller from area code 804. This caller, I believe, has a question or a comment. Let's go to area code 804. And caller, would you please identify yourself? Hi, my name is Zoe Spencer. Mm-hmm. Zoe, how are you this evening? I'm fine. How are you? Doing very, very well. First of all, thank you very much for tuning into the Gist of Freedom Blog Talk Radio, normally hosted by Leslie Gist, but tonight yours truly, Attorney Michael Cord, a.k.a. Michael X from Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, is sitting in for Leslie Gist. Uh, Zoe Spencer, I understand you have a question or a comment. Go ahead. I do. I was listening to Dr. Shabazz, and I really wanted him um, to speak to the audience about um, the influence. And you you said that you all were going to get to it later in the show, so I was planning on being a little bit more patient. But I wanted um, to know if Dr. Shabazz could speak to um, the relevance of colonialism and imperialism um, and uh, also the Berlin Conference and the relevance of that to uniting Africa because the Berlin Conference was something that was very significant to the division of Africa by European colonizers. And so I wanted him to speak to that, and I also wanted him to speak to the ideology behind Pan-Africanism because there's a very distinct ideology behind Pan-Africanism and Pan-Africanist thought. So I was wondering if Dr. Shabazz could speak to the audience about that. Well, okay. what we'll do at the end of yes, I'm sure he will. We want to make sure we break down exactly the issues you raised. I think first you talked about colonialism and imperialism. Let's deal with that before we get to the Berlin Conference, an interesting and directly relevant topic, and the ideology behind uh, the uh, pan-Africanism. So first, colonialism and imperialism relative to pan-Africanism. Dr. Shabazz, you want to respond to that? Oh, sure. Well, let's see. Um, uh, basically, um, colonialism and imperialism, number one, well, it does several things. Well, let me talk about what those are first. Colonialism, the distinction between colonialism and imperialism, colonialism means that you have a physical presence in a place and you dominate that, you dominate that place um, uh, uh, based upon your physical presence. Imperialism means that you, you're not necessarily in that space but you're dominating that you're dominating that place by way of uh, economic policies or political policies. Um, so that would be imperialism. You're not you don't have a physical presence, but you have a presence in terms of in terms of uh, uh, political unequal political power or unequal economic relations that make that might make, for example, uh, especially the francophone nations dependent upon upon uh, uh, the French economy. So that's imperialism. Now the Berlin Conference. Oh, the Berlin can I, Conference. can I, mm. Dr. Shabazz, um, as mm-hmm. you as you move forward, because you you just made a statement um about being dependent on the French economy, is that mm-hmm. really what it is? Because basically, when you look at, and I guess that's the relevance of the Berlin Conference, because when you look at colonialism yeah. and imperialism both. It really is France's and the dominant colonizers dependent on the resources, the natural resources in Africa for their wealth, which causes Africa to then become not only a divided continent but also an impoverished continent. So I was wondering if oh, you could speak no to that. Oh, no doubt about that. That's that's a that point is equally true. The point about um, the European nations and the United States, uh, the entire Western world relies upon. Um, in fact, you know, our computers can't function. Our technology can't function without Coltan from Congo. And millions of Congolese, millions of Congolese people have died, or they've been uh, made homeless, or they've been maimed um, because of our, our 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 undying thirst for for uh, minerals to fuel our technology. So yes, there's a dependency. There's dependency working both ways. So, yes, Europeans, the Western world relies on African uh, resources. But when I said dependency, I was simply marking the fact that that uh, uh, African currencies specifically were pegged to French currencies. And so that created a sense of dependency economically. Also, most African nations require they, – they, they need loans from the Western world to even function as a government. 
And so that's another sort of dependency. So the dependency works both ways. But I think what you're getting at is all of that is sort of created by European imposing themselves on African nations and extracting Absolutely. African resources so that Africans can't use those resources for them, for themselves. Absolutely. And let's do and this. African labor. Great conversation. Great mm-hmm. points. But the second issue uh, Zoe Spencer mentioned was the Berlin Conference, and she's right. I did touch on it earlier. Uh, when you talk about Pan-Africanism, when you talk about colonization, you've got to talk about the Berlin Conference. Um, what role do you see that playing in the issue of Pan-Africanism, uh, past, present, and future? Well, the Berlin Conference basically solidifies these, uh, the colonial effort in, in Africa. So the Berlin Conference takes place from 1884 to 1885 in Berlin, Germany. All the European powers are there. The Portuguese are there. The Spanish are there. The British are there. The French are there. They're all there. But but who what is, who's not there, of course, is Africans. Africans aren't being represented. Europeans are deciding on their own, you know, who's going to get what part of Africa. So basically, it's the Berlin Conference that sort of solidifies the, the carving up of Africa amongst uh, European nations. Now, uh, subsequently, and, and I should note that, that um, uh, well, there's so much I could see, but I'll, I'll just note that. Uh, fast forward to independence. One of the major challenges of, of, for, Africans, uh, for African governments is that they're still trying to make these borders that were imposed, they're trying to make these borders work. Those borders weren't challenged. They basically have been maintained. And so part of the difficulty in, in sort of the modern, quote, unquote, nation state in Africa is how do we make sense of these borders that were, were initially imposed? And that's going back to Kwame Nkrumah. Kwame Nkrumah says that we can't make these borders work. We have to do away, to, away with these borders and unite across the borders for, for our collective progress. And uh, finally, before Dr. Um, Shabazz uh, wraps things up. We want to make sure that folks who are listening to please give us a call. We're happy to hear your your questions and comments. All you have to do is dial 949-270-5957. Once again, 949-270-5957. We'll be on with Dr. Shabazz uh, for another 22, 23 minutes until 9 p.m. Uh, in regard to Zoe Spencer, I believe the third topic that she touched on was the ideology behind uh, Pan-Africanism. Zoe Spencer, is that right? Yes. Uh, yeah, Dr. Now, Bias, see, ideology could mean many different things. So I have to know, uh, what do you have in mind when you, mean, when you say ideology? Well, I wanted you to speak on it, but Pan-Africanism and Pan-Africanist thought, I mean, it's, it's your area, so I don't want to touch on your area, but um, you know, when you when you think about scholars like Du Bois and and especially um, Marcus Garvey and the whole concept of Pan Africanism, it's not just about <clears throat> uniting um, African people throughout the diaspora, but there's a, a, a central ideology behind Pan Africanist thought that deals with mental colonialism as well and um, removing European ideologies from the minds and European tales of, of African history and what Africa was and who African people oh, were. Okay. Right, right. Yeah, see that? Now, the problem, yeah, that that's all true. But the thing is that, you know, ideology could mean lots of different things. And so... Well, we Pan-Africanism has a very central ideology, though. Well, well, let me let me give you my take on it. Um, you Let me pointed out that before so you find Dr. Shabazz, mm-hmm. uh, Zoe Spencer, mm-hmm. what do you mean a specific ideology? Well, she she named it. She's talking specifically about the idea of challenging the sort of mental enslavement of African people, the, the mental colonization as part of the ideological struggle. But what I would say Zoe to that Spencer, is that, is that what you were stating? I'll, I'll let him. I'll let him. Lost. Oh, we still yeah, have no, you on. No, I'm sorry. I'm go here. ahead. No, yeah, I'll my, let my him only, see. My my only point is that uh, Pan Africanism has many different streams. Some some Pan Africanists emphasize the mental part, some don't. So it just really depends on on which Pan Africanist you're talking about, and and even is that is that considered an ideology or not? It you know it depends on who you ask. So Pan Africanism, what I would emphasize is that Pan Africanism really varies a lot depending upon who you're asking about it, and and 
and who you're who you're sort of accepting as sort of the person who defines the Pan-Africanist movement. So there are many different ways of thinking. Let me give another example. Um, there was a, a, a in Ghana, what was then called the Gold Coast, uh, in 1914, uh, his name was Chief Alfred Sam. Chief Alfred Sam was a Ghanaian. Well, he wasn't, Ghana wasn't founded then, but he, he was in what's now called Ghana. He was from the South Pond region of Ghana, Central region, and he, for reasons that I'm not clear about, I imagine that he was he had he was uh, well informed about the plight of African Americans. But Chief Alfred Sam devised a scheme to to organize or to set up an organization to bring African Americans to Ghana. And so he he buys a. He, he comes up with this uh, stock scheme where African Americans can purchase stock for $25, and eventually he raises enough money to buy a ship called the Liberian, and then he he actually sets sail from uh, Virginia with black Oklahomans, about 60 of them, to Africa, and they they wind up going back to they 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 make it back there successfully, but there are lots of hardships and difficulties, and and uh, when they land, when they finally make it there, some of them have died. Some of the African Americans have died from disease. Some of them are disenchanted with uh, with the Africans they encounter in the Gold Coast. Some of them think the place, believe the place is just too primitive for them. Others decide I can't stay here. I have to go somewhere else. And so, you know, it basically winds up being a failure. But it's an extraordinary effort by someone. You know, this effort predates Garvey by about five years before Garvey purchases the black or or founds the Black Star Line in 1919. But okay. uh, Chief Alfred Sam's emphasis wasn't so much about, he didn't have an ideological thrust. His emphasis was simply, you know, African Americans are in need of assistance. I'm going to go there and bring these people back to Africa. That's Pan-Africanism. Um, okay. so, so the problem yeah, is, I, I, I guess what I'm saying is that when you, uh, we have to be careful not to, not to define Pan-Africanism narrowly because we miss the whole scope of things that are going on that might go beyond our, our definition. Okay. Okay. Those who have just tuned in, you're listening to Dr. Kwame Zulu-Shabazz on the Gist of Freedom blog yeah. talk radio, normally hosted by Leslie Gist. But tonight, yours truly, Attorney Michael Cord of Philadelphia, sitting in. Those of you who want to join us, just like Zoe Spencer did, give us a call at 949 Five, seven. Spread the word. If you're on the line, you hear this, but other folks might not know how to reach us. You can join them. They can join you. Give us a call, 949-270-5957. Tell family and friends and others to tune in and, more important, to call in. Um, Dr. Shabazz, let me just ask a basic question. Uh, obviously, mm. most of the folks listening, I'm sure, are African-American. Um, the question then is, how should I or any other African-American, why should I or any other African-American embrace Pan-Africanism? Many black folks in America figure, hey, I'm born and raised in the United States. I'm going to die in the United States. I don't really need to get involved in this Pan-African stuff. What would be your response to that? Yeah, I, 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 I agree. I, I would say that most African-Americans um, don't have a strong sort of sense of, of Connectedness to Africa, that's fair to say. Yes. But then the, the question becomes, you know, how did that happen? Well, it happened because way back in, you know, uh, uh, several hundred years ago, part of the enslavement process was separating African, what would become African Americans, separating those, our ancestors, from their African heritage. And, you know, when I teach my class, my introduction class, oh. uh, the first day of class, I'll, I'll, I tell the students to envision that that's uh, seen in Roots, where Kunta Kinte is, is tied to a tree, and they're beating him mercilessly and making him say Toby, right? And so it's at that moment, you know, so there's, there's brutal domination, and then there's fierce resistance, and then there's accommodation or submission. So Kunta Kinte finally says Toby, right? And so that's sort of, that's sort of a metaphor for this process that's going on. Um, uh, uh, African Americans have been uh, uh, separated from their heritage, oftentimes by brutal means, and so. And then we've been taught that you know Africa's a negative thing, 
that Africa is a backwards place, that Africa is a primitive place. And moreover, that the fact that we even look like Africans is problematic. You know, we don't like our hair, and we're taught that there's something wrong with our skin complexion. And That's we're taught, we're taught that our, our, our lips and our noses are, are, are ugly. So all of that plays into this idea of, uh, or plays into the reality that most of us don't, don't associate with Africa. But we have to, and, and so all that to say is that um, to be a whole person, I would say, to, to fully claim our humanness, we have to claim all of who we are. And a fundamental part of who we are is we are Africans. We carry those ancestors with us. In fact, our very survival doing slavery on those plantations really depended upon us being able to utilize our African concepts and applying them to a strange and oppressive uh, condition. And so our Africanness is really essential to who we are, whether we acknowledge it or not. And last, let me note, too, that um, uh, that mm-hmm. even if we don't acknowledge it, pretty much what I've been outlining so far, even if we don't acknowledge or disavow our Africanness, it impinges upon our identity all the time, all of our conversations about good hair, bad hair, about you know pretty eyes being light-colored eyes, you know about our skin tone. All of that is about being African. So whether we acknowledge it or not consciously, Africa is present in, in, in much of what we do and how we cook our foods, um, how we talk English, the particular way that we talk English, the way that we worship God. All these things express our Africanness. So I'm saying that um, um, why not fully embrace those things that, we've, that, we, that have never escaped us subconsciously? Um, so so that's, sort of a, that's, that's my sort of uh, uh, complicated way of answering a very complicated question. It's necessary for us, I guess to sum up, uh, claiming our Africanness is necessary for us to become fully human. Part of the dehumanization process was de-Africanizing us. Let me ask this question, Dr. Shabazz. Um, you've been to the mother continent. You've been to Africa a number of times. Um, do you find that the people have, to, who you have encountered, do they seem to embrace, quote, unquote, African-Americans as fellow Africans or the folks that you've met on the continent, do they see us as different, as different as white people might be? What's your personal experience? You know, it can vary. It, it varies a lot. You know, there, there are my own personal experience is, is that uh, most Africans on the continent embrace me as a fellow African. Now, okay. it's, also true, it's also true that some Africans see us as foreigners, and they mark us as different because of, you know, the way that we speak English, or the fact that we speak English in a particular way, um, how we dress. When they see us in Ghana, for example, you know, we're often in these large tour groups with big backpacks and water bottles and cameras, and so we look strange to them. They're clearly, we're not, we're not from there. We're from somewhere else. So all those things mark us as different. Oftentimes, too, when uh, African Americans travel to Africa, they're, they're, they have a difficult time sort of, uh, sort of doing as Africans do, right? They, might, they don't like the food, some of us say, or we don't like the living conditions, or, or you know, electricity doesn't always, you know, doesn't always work. And sometimes, you know, the water's not always on. So there are all these, you know, there are all these challenges that, that African Americans, Africans from the diaspora encounter too. Um, and, and, and then Africans look at us saying, well, look at, those, look at those people who say they're American. They don't act very American. They act like foreigners. And so that becomes a problem too. So it's a mixed bag. But I think, having said that, I think there mm. there are well, in fact, I know there are Africans all over, from Kenya to to Sudan to Egypt to Ghana to Mali, all over Africa, there are Africans who are very enthusiastic about embracing Africans from the diaspora. And so this is going to, you know, the, there has been uh, the U.S. government and foreign governments have tried to put a wedge between us too. They've been actively trying to divide us. So there are, there are barriers that have been imposed by outside forces. And so it, all that means is that, what that means is that we're going to have to, uh, we're going to have to, you know, have honest dialogue, have honest conversation about what our differences are, what our hangups might be, 
what our stereotypes are about each other because there are stereotypes on both sides of the Atlantic. And then from that dialogue, work on how, how to bring us closer together. You know, Dr. Tabaz, I'm glad you laid it out for us. Um, whether those listening agree or disagree, we certainly appreciate and respect your opinion. Um, because we're talking generally about Pan-Africanism, let me ask you about colonization. Um, there's Paul Cuffey. There's a number of well-known African-American leaders uh, from the uh, 18th and 19th century who supported the notion of colonization. Do you see that as a form of pan-Africanism where black folks, whether enslaved or free, leaving this country to go to Africa? Is colonization a form of or a type of, of or manifestation of pan-Africanism? Well, let's see. Uh, colonization, I would say, I would look at colonization as a negative form of pan-Africanism. So you have your positive, you have your positive stream, I guess, uh, positive elements, and your negative elements. Now, mm-hmm. so in, in the the African Colonization Society, their plan was to settle free blacks in somewhere in Africa. Okay. Paul Cuffey, Paul Cuffey. By the way, Cuffey is a is a is a corruption of Kofi, which is a an Akan word for a male born on Friday. So we actually have an African name. Um, uh, Cuffey, Paul Cuffey, is is in support of this colonization project. But the problem with colonization is that, you know, when you colonize a place, that means that people are already there. And then the question mm-hmm. becomes, what is your relationship to the people who are there? And if we look back historically at that relationship, uh, African Americans who settled in Liberia. The, the relationship they had with indigenous Africans who were already there was not typically good. And even to this day, those African, those Liberians who see themselves as descendants of those African Americans who settled in Liberia, some of those Liberians see themselves as superior. Mm-hmm. Right. So, so colonization, I think, yeah, colonization is always a problem. So, but so colonization is a is a repatriation project to to sum up. Uh, so it's a it's an idea of returning to Africa, but it has a negative. The, the negative part of it is that you're sort of imposing yourself on the local people. Fair enough. Let me ask this, Doctor Shabazz, because we're running out of time. We have about eight minutes left. There's wow, about okay. I guess maybe an hour's worth of stuff I want to talk to you about. But one of the yeah. things I want to ask you about is Sankofa. I believe it's on your um, blog where you, or may, might even be on Facebook, um, where where instead of describing yourself, say, for example, as many people, Christian, Muslim, whatever, um, you refer to the Sankofa faith. Um, explain what you mean by that. Okay, well, let's see. Sankofa is a, is an, uh, a con concept from, from Ghana, and it basically means, uh, well, it's a trinomial. It's, it's three words sort of that are, that are joined together. San means return. Ko means go, to go. Uh, fa, let's see, fa, uh, fa, fa is to take, return, go take, and so it's a it's a philosophical con- concept. It means basically, um, even as you go forward, don't forget about your past. Your past is very important for your progress. Don't neglect your past. Don't forget. Don't neglect your heritage. And so this idea of Sankofa has sort of uh, traveled beyond Ghana in a sort of a universal concept. For, for African Americans sort of reclaiming their Africanness. I've seen uh, uh, people, uh, African descended people in, in Chile talking about Sankofa, and also in uh, Peru, in Mexico, uh, in Brazil. You know, for this concept has been, it's basically wherever African diasporan people are, Sankofa is. It's traveled all over the world. Now, by Sankofa faith, I was ref- I'm referring to specifically a movement in Ghana called the uh, Africania Renaissance Mission. Uh, the Africania Renaissance Mission was founded by uh, a Ghanaian Catholic priest who, after 40 years in the, in the Catholic faith, decided to, to uh, reject Catholicism and uh, reclaim African traditional religion. And uh, let's see, he saw himself as a spokesperson for African traditional religionists in Ghana and really all over the world. And so he founded this group to called the Africanian Mission to propagate his ideas about what he calls uh, 
a reformed African traditional religion. And they, they sometimes go by the name or used to go by the, the, the moniker uh, the Sankofa faith. And so that's what that was about. And, and so, uh, and I let me mention that I know the that. audience does oh, too. Know. And in the final four or five minutes that we have, okay. you know, we talked about um, Pan Africanism. We discussed it. We debated. We talked about different manifestations of it. What do you see as the future of Pan Africanism? Early on, I pointed out there's so many distinct and even competing groups. <laughs> Africa. I mean, there's Christians, there's Muslims, there's the indigenous faith. You just talked about Sankofa. There's capitalists, there's socialists, there's so-called what Europeans call tribalism or ethnic tensions. When we talk about all of this stuff, is Pan-Africanism a reality today? It's a reality as long as we keep it, uh, uh, as long as we keep it uh, viable, as long as we keep an, uh, an active, as long as we who believe in it actively assert its importance. Now, recall, too, that there was a time when our ancestors were on plantations, and it would be difficult to, it was difficult for them to imagine something beyond the plantations. Yet, you know, yet a subset of those ancestors, of our ancestors did imagine something beyond, beyond the plantation, and, and they resisted with that vision in mind, despite all odds, despite severe oppression, they had a they had a, a revolutionary vision, and so I think that's the same. Likewise, you know, in 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 Africa or all over the world, it was said that the the, the United Kingdom the the sun could not set on the United Kingdom, mm-hmm. but the sun did set, you know, because because uh, dark skinned people said no, they resisted, and that that empire is now is no more. So, so all that to say is that, uh, um, uh, likewise, Pan-Africanism might not seem very viable today. There, there are hotspots in, you know, Congo, uh, Liberia, yes. and Sierra Leone are recovering from conflict, um, and Sudan. You know, uh, southern Sudan is broken away from from Sudan proper, and there's conflict there. So, you know, all over the diaspora, you know, African Americans don't get along. So how in the hell are we going to unite all all black people? Doesn't make sense. Right, and so, but I think that we have to, we just have to maintain that vision and that belief and that faith that that uh, number one that that Pan Africanism is necessary for our progress, and number two that it's possible, and number three, you know, there, our ancestors have given us a foundation. You know, Kwame Nkrumah, Marcus Garvey, Malcolm X, uh, Queen, uh, uh, what is the sister's name, uh, uh, the Garveyites. There's there are so many. Um, who have laid a foundation for us to build this idea upon. And so, you know, it may seem impossible now, but we just have to, you know, keep going forward and having faith in in having faith in our vision. And I think we can make it a reality. Well, it's, it's good to hear that somebody like you is optimistic about Pan-Africanism. Obviously, that would be to the benefit of Africans in America and certainly Africans on the continent. You know, when uh, then-Senator Barack Obama became president, uh, Barack Obama, people begin to say, hey, here we've got an African-American with an African-American family who comes from a Kenyan family with a Kenyan father. Hey, maybe this connection between Africa and African-Americans might be made that much more clear. But I have to mm-hmm. say, and maybe you can correct me, apart from um, President Obama's direct connection to Africa, to Kenya, are there any other uh, historical events, uh, political events, popular events that people can make that connection between Africa and African Americans? If there is something, I don't know. Well, I'll mention one briefly. Uh, uh, in Ghana, uh, let's see, in, I believe this was 1997 or so, uh, the Nans came together and they had a ceremony to atone for the role that African chiefs that yeah. some African chiefs, yes. that some African chiefs okay. played the slave trade, and out of those rituals, uh, one of those chiefs in the uh, in the in the eastern region, he donated, uh, uh, I believe, it was thirty thousand acres of land for settlement by African diasporans, and that project is called the Fianca Project. 
you can go. You know, I, I would encourage folks to go online and, and read up on the Fianca project. Now, I'll say too, the Fianca project has had some growing pains. There's no doubt about mm-hmm. that. But okay, it's, it's, a, it's an institution, and it's there. And and African Americans have been promised, or African diasporans have been promised, thirty thousand acres of land to resettle, and and integrate themselves back into the African family on the African continent. So there are positive things going on. Um. Uh, that we can that we can uh, 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 get educated about and hopefully uh, use to our advantage as we as we further this Pan African project. On tonight's the Gist of Freedom Show, Blog Talk Radio, hosted by Leslie Gist. Tonight by Attorney Michael Cord of Philadelphia. Our special guest has been Dr. Kwame Zulu Shabazz, discussing Pan Africanism and the future of Pan-Africanism. I'm glad that we were able to wrap up the show with an optimistic look about Pan-Africanism. It's important that black folks come together, and if nothing else, Pan-Africanism calls for that. What I'd like Dr. Shabazz to do one final time before we wrap things up in the next few seconds, give us that email address so if folks have questions or want to get in touch with him about anything, they can contact him by email. Dr. Shabazz, go ahead. Sure. Uh, my email is uh, Kwame Shabazz, K-W-A-M-E-S-H-A-B-A-Z-Z at gmail.com. I got to tell you, Dr. Shabazz, you've been a great guest tonight. We hope to have you back sometime in the future. And big shout-out to Leslie Gist of The Gist of Freedom. Once again, great broadcasting on blog Talk Radio. Dr. Shabazz will be in touch, but once again, sir, thank you very, very much. Thank you, my brother. You're a great host. I I appreciated the dialogue. Thanks so much. I appreciate you. Thanks again. Good night, everybody.